Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Mindy Yoon, and today our guest has 20 years of analytical experience, 10 of which were in law enforcement. He was an instructor for the ILEA FIA program and an active member of the IACA, volunteering on multiple committees, including the mentoring committee where we first met. And lastly, but not least, he is the host of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. The long-awaited episode is finally here. Please welcome our guest, Jason Elder. Jason, how are we doing? We are doing well. I'm a little <laughs> nervous because I got to hold up this conversation. Uh, usually I'm the one asking all the questions and the guest is going on and on and on. And today I have to go on and on and on. So I'm a little nervous, but I'm good. I feel like it was obvious to all of us at the LEA podcast team that you would be the 100th guest. I know it was a surprise to you, but how are you feeling now since then? I knew that the idea would be presented that I would be the 100th guest, but me being humble, I didn't want to just assume that everybody would feel the same way. And maybe somebody would have an idea as to who should be the 100th guest, something different from what I was thinking. So I at least wanted to entertain the idea and not assume that everybody was going to pick me. (laughs) Well, you were obviously my first choice. So (laughs) I'm happy to do this, but let's jump in. And for those who have listened to our podcast for a while, you all know how this starts. So Jason... How did you first discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Most of this, my show is looking back. And when I look back, I discovered the law enforcement analysis profession, and then I didn't actually get into it right away, which I think is different from a lot of folks. Most folks, guests have been on my show, they discover it right before they actually take a law enforcement analyst job. For me... I went to school at Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania, Northwestern Pennsylvania. And first, I guess, always wanted to be a police officer as a child. So I went to Edinburgh for criminal justice, thinking that when I got out, I would go to a police academy and be a police officer. And then once I learned so much about criminal justice at Edinburgh, I discovered, yeah, that's not really what I want to do, be a police officer. So then I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll go to law school. And then I interned my senior year for a lawyer and he kind of set me down halfway through and gave me the ins and outs. And I decided, oh, that's not what I wanted to do either. And so I then was talking with my advisor who mentioned Mercyhurst College, which is in Erie, Pennsylvania, again, Northwestern Pennsylvania, and that they had an intelligence program and that you could be an analyst with them. So I knew of Mercyhurst in their program, but I didn't necessarily think that that was for me at the time. So you know, I did something that my advisor actually told me not to do. I I went to school until I found a career. And that's basically what happened. So out of Edinburgh, didn't get find a job, took some computer classes, Tri-State Business Institute, again in Erie for seven, eight months, didn't find a job, then went to graduate school at the University of Cincinnati, was only there nine months worth of classes. 
I was like, all right, I don't want to take more classes. I want to do an internship. That's when I talked with Dr. John Eck, professor there at Cincinnati, who had connections with Washington, Baltimore, Haida. And he said, they probably have a summer internship for you. It won't be paid, but you can have an internship. My wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, had moved to Baltimore. So I was like, okay, that's great. I'll just go there, do this internship. And it was free. And I drove a half hour to and from every day to that internship five days a week to (laughs) for free to do that internship all summer long. And essentially living off, you know, my wife's income, which wasn't very much at the time. At the end of my internship, my manager, who was Joe Ryan, Joe Ryan from LexisNexis, he set up a meeting with Tom Carr, who's the director of the Washington Baltimore Haida, and he had two different positions for me. So this is gets into, as I look back, maybe a sliding doors uh, situation. It's funny. My son, who's 12 years old, knows that movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know how. It's a 1997 movie, but he references the concept of sliding doors. He's your son, so I'm yeah, not too surprised. He's, he, yeah, he's a, you know, weird like that, I guess. So I interviewed for both. The one was a, a Haida analyst stationed at the Baltimore Police Department. And the other one was a Haida analyst stationed in DC with the DEA. And basically it was almost like a feeder program to becoming a DEA analyst. So I interviewed for both. And I, I went back at the, at when I did the DEA interview, because they had me write a couple essays as test questions. And at the time I was just got done with graduate school and studying all these court cases right? All the famous Supreme Court cases that were still in my head. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting there writing these essays and referencing all these court cases, none of which I know now, but at the time I could rattle off like 30 of them. So I, I could just imagine what they thought, like, who is this guy referencing court cases in these questions that we're supplying? But anyway, I ended up getting offered both jobs. We lived in Baltimore at the time, and actually from the police department, it was, I think, six blocks. So I was within walking distance from, from where we lived and thought about it. I don't know. I, I, get, I, don't, I think I remember in, at the time that DEA just did not seem like something that was for me. And it was, it, it's kind of weird now when I think about it, because it was probably something that wasn't even something that I could substantiate if I was trying to describe why I didn't think the DEA was for me, but I ended up picking Baltimore. So it would have been interesting to see how my career would have turned out if I would have took that DEA job or the the Haida analyst job with the DEA and the path becoming a DEA analyst. That was Um, going to be one of my follow-up questions for you, because you said earlier that you wanted to be a police officer, but that didn't work out. You want to go into the prosecution side, be an attorney, and that didn't work out. So like, I guess, I don't know if you remember the exact moment or like the, an assignment that you work on, like what made you knew like this was it? Like, what was the spark where you're like, this is it. This is what I want to do. This is what I want my career to be. Hmm. I don't know if it was something that I wanted or the just something that became to be, right? Because I had the internship with the mapping program there at the Washington Baltimore Haida. I was doing research, learning ArcGIS and ArcMap and MapInfo. 
the research portion of that came naturally. And so then I'm like, okay, I, I want a job. I want to be able to do some research without getting into academic research per se. I still want to be part of a law enforcement agency. So it was probably with that internship that I realized that, hey, this is this could work for me. I enjoy building maps, building data processes, studying crime patterns and trends, working on cases. So Jason, can you take us back that first day, that first feeling when you started at Baltimore? How did that feel to you? Like, what was your first impression? Yeah, I was so excited. (laughs) It was so funny. So I'm in my suit and tie in the apartment. As I said, there was only six blocks away. I'm nervous. There's so many unknowns. I had already gotten the badge a couple of days prior to this and the the Baltimore PD ID. That morning I am I am practicing in case somebody asked if that they needed to see my ID. In the mirror I'm going to be like Jason Elder. Bam. <laughs> and I <laughs> and I'm and I'm all excited about it. Everything was had to be just so, right? It was probably more than I spent normally for like the first day of school. So it was, but it was that feeling. And so I go walk down the six blocks and this is August. It's actually August 28th. It's Tuesday, August 28th. And there's a reason why I know it's, it's Tuesday, August 28th. I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> and it's like eight o'clock in the morning and it's already hot in Baltimore. So I'm already like sweating. I go to the main, the main area and they call Eric Cunahia, who was another HIDA analyst down to come pick me up. Even though I had, I had the badge, they still wanted me to do that. Eric is, <laughs> Eric is Hawaiian and he just has this naturally mean looking face. And, and, I, and I've told him this a hundred times. Like, so he walks up just looking like a man that's pissed off. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is going to be awful because I am a, can be a little bit goofy and silly. And this is going to be this super stern military guy. That's my first impressions of him is like, he just had this face that just this natural scowl. <laughs> and it's funny to think about it now because we became such good friends during our time there. And I was, I was kind of like his little brother. He was 10 years years older than me and we used to do joke around and do silly stuff I would always try to sneak up on him in the cubicle to see how close I could get to him before he realized I was there he always carried a knife (laughs) with him so he would he wouldn't even have to say anything he would just reach down for his knife and that was him let me know that he realized I was there so it was always like those things I don't think I ever got closer than like five feet to him So anyway, he's just walking into there the first day, you know, it was very intimidating. I got to sign a cubicle, sign a computer. Beth Hart's there. She's another analyst. So there was three intelligence analysts from Haida stationed there in Baltimore to help with violent crime. And I just remember just looking around the first week, first couple of days, thinking like, man, this is like, this is it. This is how it works. This is, you know, you see this on TV, you see, you've been to police departments before. This is, I'm part of this unit now. And it was, we were stationed in the planning and research division at the time. So those guys that were doing the mapping, people that were dealing with grants, people that were doing any kind of research and you're in the cubicles and you're working together. And it was just a bunch of different characters at the police department, 
like I think back, it's like the, the movie Other Guys, where they had all these different characters in the police department. And I, and I could assign in, in that movie. I was like, yeah, that was that guy in my office. That was that guy, girl in that office and so on and so forth. So, so it had a variety of characters in there. And just, you know, looking back, it was just a, a good time that I wish I would have better appreciated. Because I think one thing that I knew like right away, I was really hungry. I was, Eric always loved my tenacity. He was like, man, you are so tenacious. Like I wanted to change the way we did stuff. I wanted things to be better. I came in thinking that I could improve with just about any process because I didn't know that much about policing or the Baltimore area two things that really I wish I would have known more about prior to starting. I relied heavily on data management, on the data, like focus on the data, because that was something I could study and improve. And so I went in there and I improved our report writing process for the cases that we worked on and built this database out of this report. So we could then search cases that were same scenarios came up or same names came up we could we could search it and it was just it was that kind of stuff that i eventually realized that i really like the data process i liked building data did you get any pushback from like it or command staff like who's this new guy coming in trying to change up things like did you get any pushback or was it really well received I would say not at Baltimore. I think at Baltimore, the IT staff were so busy that they appreciated anything where somebody was trying to do it on their own. There was certainly other places that I eventually worked to that I did get pushback from IT, but not not necessarily at Baltimore. So yeah, so and I guess another part about this time is, as I mentioned, I I started on Tuesday. August 28th. And the reason I know that is that that was 2001. So exactly two weeks later, 9-11 happened. So my whole career only knows two weeks of pre-9-11. And so that was certainly uh, something that was interesting for me as I look back, as uh, you know, I mentioned that we were in an apartment in Baltimore. We were on the 29th of 30 floors. So and when this all happens, I wasn't really too thrilled to go home <laughs> to go sleep in a in a high rise. But one of the more memorable moments of that day for me was running different data through the databases and trying to figure out where us analysts could help. There at one point in time in the afternoon, a officer came through. They sent officers through all the offices. And he had a automatic weapon. He walked through and made sure everybody had their ID. And I remember thinking that, man, that is like, this is, are we going to be in like a police state coming out of this? Is this how it's going to be where it's going to be kind of like a military presence at the workplace? Certainly turned out not to be. That was the only time that's ever happened. But I do remember that that feeling of him asking for my ID. And of course, I wasn't like Jason Elder Bam at that point. But <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> I remember that that was like, man, that's that seemed like a really big deal at the time. So I guess uh, just to fast forward a little bit. So I move around Haida and eventually get to work on a task force just south of Baltimore. Started working wire investigations. What was fantastic about these task forces is that you just got to work with a whole variety of agencies. Not only was it 
local Maryland law enforcement that I was working with. I was working for the state police, and then I was working for all the federal agencies, ATF, FBI, DEA. And I guess this is, I guess this is getting into my badge store. I'm going to, I'm going to take your jobs, Mindy, there and kind of segue automatically (laughs) into the badge store. Another question I guess I should ask, it's like, how's it going so far being in the guest seat? Is it hard to like take off your host hat? Yeah, it, well, it is like, okay, did I just go into too much detail there? Did, is everybody listening now asleep? Because I went into all of that because I realized that for me in this memory of just thinking back, it's fascinating to look back and to reminisce about the feelings of different time throughout your life. But I don't know for the listener, the listener might be asleep right now. I hope you're not driving, <laughs> but so far so good. Yeah, I was going to let the guests know. I'm like, it's weird for me to being on this side because I'm usually in the background. I don't record a lot. And it was on the table of like, hey, Jason, what if you played both the host and the guest and you just talk to yourself? (laughs) I think that would have been funny for about three minutes and then it it would just have been weird. Yeah, so I think that would have been funny is if we recorded this, had you still be the interviewer and then I just came back and recorded all the questions so that would would have been interesting and probably so, really annoying to, to the listeners <laughs> should I segue into it should you segue into it I was at the same like okay this leads into what's the thing you say this leads into your badge story yeah. and then you're so nice you explain the badge story I'm just like look it's the 100th episode if you don't know what the badge story is at this point I don't know what to tell you <laughs> not a nice hope <laughs> Well, I never know who's going to be new. So if I say the analyst badge story, yeah, it's the career defining case or project. And I never know, you know, we get variety of guests. And I know once they get the link to the episode, they're posting on their social media. So you never know who's going to be brand new to the to an episode. So so yeah, that's what I normally do. And I, you did make that great suggestion. I'm like, oh, how do I do this? So I, I have tried to do a little bit so it's not so repetitive. But so I career defining project is so I'm working the wire and I always joked around that I worked in Baltimore and I worked on wire investigations but I didn't work on the wire the tv show and to this day I still haven't seen one episode of the wire the tv show which I I probably should but working that investigation dealing with telephone tolls and I've talked about this a couple of different times on the the podcast is just in the early 2000s dealing with all these telephone tolls, putting in requests to all these telephone companies and trying to get back subscriber information, telephone tolls, and having them give it, they would give sometimes give it back to us in a physical copy. So we were then scanning it in and trying to clean it up. And so we could study it look for patterns and trends and do all that stuff with it. And it was so much work and trying to put that in there. So it was running that for the, this case. And then once we went up on the wire, just doing research for all the people that we were talking to for most of the investigation, it was standard for me. It was something that I had done previously, worked with the DEA agents who I had become really familiar with. So they would give me information. I was running as much as I could, people, places, things, automobiles, doing the research, trying to identify gaps and who all the players were doing link charts. 
So we get to the point in the wire investigation that it's gone long enough. It's time to do all the arrests. So we're planning all that and we're trying to get everything set up. And they're uh, part of those meetings, getting everything set up. And it's at that point that the the DEA head, I'm going to drop his name. I'm gonna drop, I dropped his name, looks at me and says, Jason, do you want to come with us? And to that point, I had never gone to the day of arresting everybody. And I said, sure, what, what do I have to do? And I'm like, okay, be here at 5 a.m. I'm like, okay. So again, like I'm not sleeping that night. I'm excited. I'm like, oh, what's this going to be like? What do I wear? You know, um, whatever it is. By that point, I knew I wasn't going to try to be something that I not, I'm not because I was going to stick out like a sore thumb <laughs> anyway, because I was going to be so excited that this day was going on. So meet at five o'clock. I'm there. And they go down and the first house we go to and they go to use the batting ram to knock down the door. For some reason, this this door held up way better than what anybody anticipated. So it took like 10 shots of the battering ram for for them to get the door knocked in. And so it was like we woke up the entire neighborhood by the time we got in there. And so they they clear the room and I'm of course I'm way back by this point. I'm not even really all that close. The room gets cleared. I was able to go in at that point in time. And it's just it, it, and this is that the, there's a it's at this point is so vivid to me because it comes to a point in time when me and the main suspect are just this might sound weird, but we're just sitting on his bed and it's just me and him. And I have my list of questions that I'm trying to, to figure out, trying to fill in the gaps. Cause at the, by this point, like he had talked to his lawyer. We had him, we had him dead to rights. Cause it was, we had him talking on the wire. Right. And so he decided to cooperate. So I started asking about all these phones and he's like, he goes to me, he's just like, how many phones do you have of me? And I said, three and he laughs and he's he, he looks up at the the agent and he's like can i get my drawer and he's like yeah he's like and he pulls out like 13 phones so here i had three i was trying to figure out what this guy was doing based on three phones and he had 13 and so we just had this conversation and this guy man it, in another life and if making other decisions he had an incredible memory he had one of those memories where he could, ex he could remember what he was wearing a year ago. So we could ask him questions about that a certain date, he would give it to us. And then he would ask us questions. He's just like, Hey, on this and this date, were you guys following me? Of course, we're scrambling around because none of us have that memory and we're scrambling around this, that most of the time. Yeah, we were. And there were, there, I remember there was one time where we were like, no, we, we definitely weren't on you that day. And the look on his face, like he, it was weird because he's like, oh, it's like, well, if it wasn't you, then who was, who was following me that day? It was kind of weird. It, it, another thing that I remember is he said, here, I'm going to give you guys some advice. He's like, you guys got to get rid of that brown minivan because everybody knows it's a surveillance van. And as soon as it comes into the neighborhood, everybody knows to, you know, stay away from it. So you guys got to get rid of it because everybody knows it. So it was just fascinating from my point of view to just like have this whole case culminate of me sitting down and talking with this guy. And I had a feeling I didn't ask this him that directly, but he kind of had the idea that he knew this day was coming. 
I always felt that he had a bunch of money stashed away. I think he knew this was coming and that he was going to just stash money away. And then whenever he was going to get out, then he was going to go on, do something else. I, you know, I never followed up on it. I forget how many, how much time he got, but I always had that feeling that he was, he was not surprised that we were there. He was not surprised that this day was happening. It's almost like he anticipated it. We talk a little bit about on the podcast about humanizing some of this data and humanizing the cases and everything else. And so for me, sitting down with him after working numbers and subscriber information, I2 charts and all this data for this case, for, for it to end with just me and the suspect talking profoundly sticks with me. I'll end the story with, so we're there and we, I was there all day. I was at the, the house all the whole entire time. We were running evidence that we found there through databases. We were doing it. So it's late in the day and there's a knock at the door and they're like, Jason, go, go get it. And I said, all right. And so I go answer the door and it's the suspect's wife's sister. And I said, she's like, she's like, oh, is so-and-so here? And I'm like, yeah, come on, you know, come on in. So they allowed her in. And she, of course, tell, you know, the wife tells her what was going on and, and everything else. And the, <laughs> the sister, the sister says, this is her exact words when she finds out what has happened. And she's like, oh, I can't take all this stress. I just got my boobs done this morning. And so, so that, <laughs> to me, that's the that's like the final image of this. So I was just, I think about that. I'm like, oh, what a funny way to end this project. Last question I have is, did the department take that guy's advice? Did you guys get rid of the brown van or do you guys still have it? Or I'm pretty sure they did get rid of it once that was known. They just used, they would have got rid of it, probably either transferred it out and then they would have got another one. I know they usually sometimes would use vehicles that were confiscated in another investigation they would then bring in so yeah i, I do believe that that did get, that that, <laughs> that brown van did it there was another funny story about that brown van is that the one guys did question it the one time and so they started looking through the windows the one guy that was in there the one dea agent is in there is like hiding in the back trying to avoid being seen by these guys looking through the the windows and you know he always got picked on for trying to hide because he was like six four so he was like he wasn't a small guy trying to hide the van there wasn't in a van there's not very many places to hide but it was it was picked on him about trying to hide from the peepers looking in so after baltimore uh remind me again how long were you at baltimore i was with the washington baltimore haida for seven years uh, and as then, i mentioned mo moved around a little bit within the haida organization but seven years and then afterwards you went to uh the cincinnati police department Yes. One of the, I mentioned not really appreciating at the time what I had and, you know, and wanting to change and, and whatnot. It felt like from day one of working at Baltimore Police Department, I was looking for my next job. Again, I'm not exactly sure why I was so impatient, probably. I guess it's part of me being a 20 something person, but I was so impatient. And so I probably put in application after application after, I mean, i hundreds of applications that I put in for other jobs in the seven years that I was with the Washington Baltimore Haida all around DC 
and never really found a good landing spot for what I wanted. And then my wife gets her PhD, wants to go to Cincinnati. And I was like, well, okay, well, I've been to Cincinnati before. I had been there in graduate school. And so, yeah, we can, we can do that. And so now I am going from Jason Elder, the Intel analyst on drug investigations, to Jason Elder, the crime analyst at a police department. I'm the only civilian analyst at Cincinnati Police Department at the time. It's interesting to me that I kind of came in, the people that hired me had kind of what I would think kind of bloated my resume, I feel in a, in a way. I came in with a little bit of hype. I think people thought I was going to be like, I don't know, like Harry Potter or something like that and wave a wand and all the things were going to be better. So I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not able to do that. And there was sometimes there was like disappointment in the room that I said, no, I, I don't know how to do that. But my, my tour at Cincinnati, you know, it was my, it was my second time. As I mentioned, when I was in graduate school, they had the, the race riots, which Joe Lorenz and I talked briefly about in our episode from a couple of weeks ago. But it was, it was fascinating being a graduate school with, with the riots. I remember taking a bus downtown after the riots had occurred and just seeing all the destruction, the broken windows, just all the, the mess down, downtown. It was the, the TV cameras couldn't re- truly capture the devastation. That's, what, that's how I felt when I was looking through everything, taking the bus and just going through and seeing everything firsthand. But, and then to see the aftermath, to be there at Cincinnati after the riots had, had happened and they had uh, feds and consultants and, and everything else work with the city of Cincinnati to improve the, the citizen relations there. But came in, I still found that I relied on my data management. I was stationed with IT, so I had access to probably more data than most of the district analysts did. And so it was, again, I was trying to build processes, try to improve processes to help everything else. So I still felt a little bit like I was a facilitator. Did work on some cases every once in a while, but for the most part, I felt that it was kind of like the data czar and trying to get the data right and and push it out to the district analysts and help the district analysts where, where they needed it. As I look back at Cincinnati, every once in a while, I won't say that it's a regret, but it's just something that I sometimes relive in my head to be like, oh, if I could do a redo, I would do it differently. I would, how would I do it differently? And I have this, it'll play out in my head. And there was this one time we had this Comstat style meeting and District 2, which isn't normally one of Cincinnati's problem districts had an issue with burglaries. Year to date, it was like 50% higher. A week prior, I had put out a new report to everybody, made it public, just more detailed granular data of the, the crime stats. We get into the meeting that morning, a reporter from the Cincinnati newspaper had wrote an article talking about this, this issue and said that it was like 65% higher year to date. And then people started in the meeting started questioning. I was like, well, is it 50 or is it 60 or is it 65 and all this other stuff? I, I didn't have a computer with me. I couldn't really tell what, what it was, you know, what, what the true number was. But the chief decided to call the meeting because the data wasn't right. And I, I remember going back to the office and it just uh, kind of with the tail between my legs. And I was like, oh, like that, you know, it, that shouldn't have been what certainly the case and try to figure out what went wrong. And 
here my report had calculated the new report that I had, you know, calculated something, something a little bit different. The redo would be to stand up and say, whether it's 50 or 60, there's still a problem. 50% wouldn't be okay. Right. And there's nobody in this room that's going to tell me that it's either the same as last year or lower than last year. There's a problem and we need to work it out. And I really wish I would have stood up there and said that. And I didn't. And we're talking about me as somebody, I'm probably nine years into my career at this point. So it's not like I'm a newbie, but that, that you know, again, I, I don't necessarily see it as a regret because I don't, you know, it's not like it ruins my present day, but every once in a while, I'll think about that and I'll be like, you know what? I wish I would have done it a little bit better. How long were you at Cincinnati at that point? Was that two years? Two years. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I mean, yeah, you weren't new to the field, but you were new to the department. So maybe, you know, there's some hesitation there, like you don't really know the culture yet, but that was actually going to be my uh, next question for you since you've been in Bose. I was always curious, like for me, I started with a local PD, just knowing my one jurisdiction. And then as my career progressed, then I went on to like a multi-jurisdictional task force where I work with multiple jurisdictions, but you did it the other way around. So do you think as like a newcomer, do you think that it benefited you to work with so many different departments and jurisdictions right off the bat? Or do you wish you would have just started with one first and then grow from there? Or Hmm. There's advantages to both. And that's going to be a cop out a little bit. I, I, I actually think it probably would be better to work on a task force first. And certainly somebody in the comments can tell me if they disagree with me on this, but I think there's an advantage to working with a task force to get to know different departments, local departments, state departments, federal departments, and to build your network as you progress to one agency, local agency, and then have that in your background. But there's still a huge learning curve that I found I had trying to be new to a city and understand the police culture and understand just the intangibles of the the crime, right? I relied way too much on the data aspect of things. There was so much more to learn about the aspects of crime that I didn't know. And I think, again, Joe Lorenz and I talked briefly about it in his episode. So uh, I highly recommend folks listening to this to listen to, to that episode. I would agree with that assessment because I went to the task force when I first moved here to Colorado. So I didn't know anything about it. The whole state was new to me. So working with a multi-jurisdictional task force does help me learn the area quicker. Like you said, just being more familiarized with a little bit of everything. But I guess on the flip side of that, I was kind of embarrassed, like, because I was a Lakewood analyst assigned to the task force and people would ask me about Lakewood specific stuff. And I'm like, um, I can tell you what the task force working on, but <laughs> I wasn't like particularly like an expert in my own jurisdiction. I was an, I guess for lack of a word, was like an expert in like task force activities and the specialty that we're in. So like you said, there's advantages to both. One hundred episodes. I want to thank the podcast staff, Mindy, Jennifer, Kathleen, Catherine, and Alexis. I also want to thank the guests that have been on the show. You are truly the stars of the show. Thank you to the audience 
for listening and for your support. Although I'm a little disappointed with the audience in that no one has figured out what the Easter egg is in my Excel chapter in the IACA textbook. Hopefully by the time we get to 200 episodes, somebody will have figured it out. Until then, thank you to all. I am truly humbled. So Jason, after Cincinnati, that was your last law enforcement analysis position. So even though you left law enforcement, you're still heavily involved. I mean, we talked about ILEA, we talked about IACA, of course, our podcast. I guess my question would be like, why did you leave the law enforcement profession and why did you still choose to remain in it? Sure. Following my wife again. So my wife goes to me and says, I want to go work for Vanderbilt in Nashville. I'm like, okay, looking to get a job in Nashville. I think I told the story of what happened to me in Nashville in one of the episodes with Sean Bear's guide to hiring a law enforcement analyst. And I'll, I'll link that into the description to there. But so I had struck out trying to get a job as a law enforcement analyst in Nashville. So my wife had already moved down to Nashville and I was still in Cincinnati and we had a young son. And then we find out that she's pregnant with our second child. So there became a sense of urgency for me to get to Nashville. I looked around and I was open to leaving. I will say that from the start. I I was proud of my career. I had accomplished a lot. I had used my degree and that was really important to me. Because I knew a lot of folks who got a criminal justice degree and never worked one day in a criminal justice career in their life. And, you know, to each their own. But to me, it was really important to me that I use my criminal justice degrees. And I did. I had 10 years and I I used my degrees. So I was open. I said, hey, let's reinvent myself here. So because of those two things... I started applying to different aspects and my wife was like, Hey, well, what they do here at Vanderbilt is they realize that there's husbands and wives and what they have a program is, is they'll, they have a program in which they'll try to find spouses jobs at Vanderbilt. And so I contacted rep from HR. This is who I am. This is what I do. They just start sending me jobs. I think what's what's funny when I look back at that time, and I might have talked about this on the show too, that at Cincinnati, the one captain asked me to build a dashboard, and this is 2008. And so I download this Excelsius program off the internet and get a free trial. And then I think we eventually purchased it and I build this dashboard. You know, when I'm putting together my resume for Vanderbilt, I'm taking out some of the law enforcement stuff that I didn't think was needed, more analysis stuff, more data management. I put this that I worked with this Excelsius program. So that's what caught the eye of my manager. They were using Excelsius at the time. So they were like, okay, let's bring this guy in. So that got me the interview. I I still remember being in the lobby waiting for my interview. And I was thinking, man, what am I doing here? This is Vanderbilt and put it on a pedestal that it really didn't need to be on. And that's no, no knock on Vanderbilt. It just it was just in my own head. 
part of me wanted to just walk out and thinking that I was about to embarrass myself. But because, hey, it's time I needed a job. I needed to get to Nashville. Felt that the, my wife really needed me in Nashville. So go through the interview, end up getting the job. It was interesting because probably it was two weeks after I started at Vanderbilt. I got word that there was a analyst job in Nashville PD opening. I applied. I took the interview and it actually got offered the position, but I, I, I kind of misspoke there. I had only been, when I got offered the position at the police department, I had only been working at Vanderbilt for two weeks and I just didn't think it was fair to them. I wanted to see where this was going to land and a major reason why I didn't take this job. The job with Nashville police department is one of the tasks was to create a three-wing binder worth of information for a CompSat process. And I had done that. I had been part of that. And I felt, too, that I was tired. I was tired of fighting for what I thought the position should be. And I did not want to go in there with the idea that I'm going to change this position because that's what I did mainly for seven years when I was in Haida and even three years in Cincinnati. I was changing the position to what I thought it should be and working with leadership to get where I thought the position should go. And I was really tired. And I thought, I, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to have to struggle and fight and do this task each week in the hopes that I change it to becoming what I think it should be. So I turned it down and stayed with Vanderbilt. It just, it just worked out for me at Vanderbilt. It really, really has. I've grown. I've uh, still working with data, learn SQL, building data processes, which I really enjoy doing from beginning to end, getting the data definition, getting the business requirements and building either reports or dashboards or data sets. That's really what I've enjoyed and not so much of the analysis work. It's funny. I, I actually don't think I'm a very good analyst and which I think probably might be the most surprising comment that I make today. I but, make the two of us. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I'm I just, kidding. yeah, because I think of somebody like Jenny Sang, who is just 100% dedicated to the outlaw motorcycle gang aspect and as a student and studies and has become an expert with that topic. I don't necessarily have that. I don't necessarily have that drive to learn one thing, to become an expert in, in that particular realm, to sit there and read through a ton of different data and to consume and consume and consume one particular topic. It would, it would eventually get boring to me. That and I hate to read, so I don't. That that works always works against me. But, I was gonna say that is a very interesting. It, it's interesting you say that because I was gonna say you used to teach, and I feel like you know when you're a teacher, you're a subject matter expert in something, and reading is kind of part of teaching, kind of thing. So it's well, interesting you say. Yeah, but you th you think about that, that whatever you're teaching is finite, right? Mm -hmm. It's not finding a needle in a haystack, which I get annoyed by. Like most people I talk to on our show like the idea that the case is a puzzle and they need to figure it out, or they like to look through a bunch of stuff to find that needle in a haystack. I don't necessarily 
find that enjoyable. I, I, I like the building aspect of it. Like I really enjoy the, the data management aspect, aspect of the job. And, but for back to the teaching thing is it's, you know, most of the time of what I'm teaching is a technical skill, right? I'm teaching Excel access SQL and it's finite. I know exactly from beginning to end the topic and the scope of what I'm teaching. So there does is, doesn't necessarily need to be a lot of reading. There doesn't need, necessarily need for me to have a bunch of expertise in a particular topic. You know, it's technical. It's it's more hands on. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. Going back to you at Vanderbilt. So, how did you adjust to the different culture? Because working in law enforcement for like a decade and then going back into, for lack of better phrases, the quote unquote normal world, was it a hard adjustment or was it just like any other position? I don't know if it was out actually like any other position. I know the law enforcement world and I know Vanderbilt world really. So it's not like I have a lot of different stops in a variety of different companies and fields and whatnot. So it's, it's kind of hard for me to know what, what, what normal is, but <laughs> I'll, I'll say this. When I showed up at Vanderbilt, it was the first time I felt my boss truly knew what my job was and knew the tasks to assign me, knew what I should be learning, what projects I should be assigned, how I improve my career development, where do I want to go? And sitting down with me twice a year and say, okay, where do you want to go? Because we'll help you get there. It was a truly what I thought felt is to be a team environment where you had these group of analysts. Because up to that point, I mostly worked in a in an office where it was maybe me and one or two different analysts. We were still, we were civilians, right? And there was still much, as much as I hate the topic of civilian versus sworn on the show, it was there, right? This this whole idea that I, at, at Haida, it was, it was worse because not only was I a civilian, I was a Haida employee, not even a a Baltimore Police Department employee. I wasn't even a city employee. So I had that double layer of being an outsider. And then at, at Cincinnati, there still was this idea of sworn versus civilian. There wasn't that at Vanderbilt at all. Even I look across the way and I was just like, me and this other person have the same job. And here I have a criminal justice degree from Edinburgh. And and that person may have a business degree from Vanderbilt or an expensive college, but here we're sitting hand side by side each other doing the same job. It was truly a fresh start for me. And I really embraced the idea of learning and being part of a team and just not feeling like there was this two-class system. That makes sense. I, I share the same sentiment. I think I told you as well, when I first started my current job, because I'm also out of law enforcement, that I had a, a bit of a hard time adjusting because law enforcement was after, right after college. That's what I jumped right into is all I knew in my professional life. It's like my first or second week that we got this email, like somebody accidentally dropped the F-bomb during like a meeting or something and had to write like a formal apology. And I was just thinking in my head, I'm like, I might as well just start drafting my apologies and have an <laughs> updating date because I dropped the F-bomb like every other word. <laughs> it's just like, that's just how, you know, you 
unfortunately learn how to speak when you're in certain, you know, dynamics and cultures. And then um, not that my sergeants and patrol, not, not that people weren't nice to me, but I feel like it's like a different style of niceties or niceness. So my current supervisor is super nice. And it, it was weird. It took some adjusting. I was like almost uncomfortable with the level of how nice she was. I'm like, why are you so nice? It's like almost weird to me. And I was like, oh, this is how quote unquote normal people behave. <laughs> I'm so yeah. used to, again, people weren't mean to me, but you know, angry cops, it's stereotypical, you know, it's a stressful job. So I was used to a different dynamic. I was used to a different culture. So coming out, I wasn't sure if you had a similar experience of just everything's just a bit calmer. People are a bit nicer, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, it definitely was. And it was just, okay. I understand that. I understand that this is where we're going. It just, there was, the path was so much clearer for me. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, like every year I reminisce and get a, a little bit of anxiety about the annual review at Vanderbilt. And it's not anything about Vanderbilt's annual review process. Every year when the annual review comes up, I think of the time I was at Cincinnati Police Department and the sergeant who did not work in the same office as me, I was assigned to the sergeant, you know, in the hierarchy, but we worked in two different offices, scheduled a meeting with me. And I didn't realize even at the time that it was a one-on-one meeting. I just knew it was a meeting, right? Came to the meeting, went to the conference, it was room, it was one-on-one and proceeded to give me the annual evaluation. I had no idea it was an annual evaluation and then proceeded to just really nitpick and tear me apart. And the one thing I, I think I talked about this too with Sean is that the, I was downgraded for my customer service because the the description was great customer service and the sergeant thought I only had good customer service. <laughs> and it was just so incredibly petty in my opinion. And the thing about it is it's Cincinnati, it's Ohio. That, that's a public record. So you could go and read probably exactly what was written about me in that evaluation because of, the, of their sunshine laws. And I thought, geez, and I, and I bring this up to the supervisor at Vanderbilt every year when we talk about that and they're like, geez, I can't imagine waiting for an evaluation to tell you that you were doing something wrong. Like if you're doing something wrong, I'm going to tell you right now and we're going to work on fixing it. And, but to me, it is, I still get that feeling. And that's just one of those things again, that it comes up from time to time where it's like, Oh, I could do a redo. What would I have done? It probably would have been worse. So I'm glad I don't get a redo on that one. So at the beginning, when I started like this question, it was a, two-parter which is on me it's a loaded question but um like we talked about you know both you and I were both out of law enforcement right now but clearly still involved you're active member of IACA and like I said of course the podcast and stuff like do you I guess for lack of better terms and stuff do you ever get like imposter syndrome or like should I still be here especially at this point you're like well I'm not in law enforcement but I've been in it for such a while like how do you handle those like self-doubting narratives or like those negative self-talk yeah there's a lot to that I I guess first off I'd want to tell you that I don't miss law enforcement (laughs) there's probably several reasons that I've hit on here of of why I don't and but some of the stuff that I do miss about law enforcement and wish I was still on it is really for all the wrong reasons Right. It's when I saw my son's eyes, his face light up when I told him that I used to work in a police department. It's that kind of stuff. It's this idea that I'm part of 
a process where we're saving the day and that we're doing something for the citizens and we're improving society. We're saving the world, so to speak, even if it's indirectly. To me, that's just not necessarily the reason to be in law enforcement. So there's a lot that I don't miss. But I found that over my 10-year period as a law enforcement analyst, working with ILEA and working with IACA, going to the conferences, teaching alongside fellow analysts, that you just create a lifetime bond with some of these folks. We've talked several times on the podcast about these annual events being like family reunions, getting to see these people once a year and being part of that was something that I wanted to do, even though I was outside of law enforcement, I still wanted to be part of the associations and felt that I could contribute. And so while I enjoy where I'm at, I kind of get the best of two worlds. I can work at Vanderbilt and enjoy my job that way but still do things that I like to do, which is teach and travel to the conferences a couple times a year and see people that I really enjoy their company and whatnot. So to me, it's a win-win. I think for the imposter syndrome, I guess since I, I was an analyst, I don't feel necessarily like, hey, I don't belong here or belong at IACA conferences or belong at doing a podcast on law enforcement analysis. It's funny. It's been 10 years since I've been in law enforcement analysis. So it is kind of weird when I go to some of these conferences, it's like, yeah, it's been 10 years since <laughs> I've been out 10 years now, and but here I am teaching. And I, I think it's funny because when I think of imposter syndrome because that's that comes up on the on the podcast from time to time like people say like pinch me uh, like I'm not really supposed to be here kind of thing and I don't necessarily feel that way like it, it's not to me I'm a very practical person that's one of the things is you live long enough you really start to understand who you are and what you are and so to me when I am a part of whatever it is whether it's getting a job at a police department or being chosen as an instructor for an association. It's not that I feel that I don't belong. It's usually that I bring whatever task is down and I don't put it on such a pedestal. I'm like, okay, you know what? This is what it is, right? It's, it's this level. It's, it's on the level. It's something that I can do. Another thing that might be shocking to the audience is I find myself to be incredibly average. <laughs> I don't find myself to be like overly athletic or overly skilled or the smartest person in the room type of person. So to me, I was like, okay, anybody can really do what I do. It doesn't take necessarily any any special skill. And so I've gotten fortunate enough to be chosen. I can do what's being asked of me. I'm part of the team. And it's not so much that, that I don't belong there. It's just that I do belong there. It, but I just also feel that anybody can come in and replace me at any given time. Because I think it's not, what I'm doing isn't unique and isn't so spectacular that only a few people in the whole world can do it.
You weren't kidding about being humble. <laughs> I was going to provide some reassurance. And I was like, oh, he seems he seems okay. He doesn't need the reassurance. I was going to say, even though you are out of law enforcement, but your contribution to the profession has been so profound. I don't think that it can ever be taken away. I mean, you have a whole chapter that you did for the current IACA book. Like you said, you've taught classes and the last conference in Vegas during the business meeting, when the board members opened up for the floor for questions, and I don't know what it is, but it was just funny that you raise your hand and they're like, of course, Jason has something to say. And then right after I raised my hand, it's just of course, Mindy has something to say. It's always these two, <laughs> always has something to say. So I don't know. I, I feel like you've cemented, like you said, your position in this profession. So no need to, I guess, further prove yourself. But I also think that you need to give yourself more credit because I mean, sure, anybody can do anything, but will they, you yeah. know? And I feel like that's what makes the difference. Like I, anybody can make a podcast. I mean, for those that don't know, I'm just, I don't even have a microphone. I'm just shouting at my laptop right now, <laughs> hoping, <laughs> hoping that, you know, my voice gets picked up. Like Again, anybody can do this, but it's just a matter of like, well, I commend you for going that extra step. So yeah, and this wasn't me being like the self-loathing, woe is me type yeah. person. I just mm-hmm. realized that this is the scenario that in this is how I take on the world. You know, you and you can totally dissect this. This gets into a lot of the decisions that I make and where I sit on a lot of issues and what and whatnot. But for me, there is a desire. Even though I'm not in the position, there is this desire to see it improve, to see the associations improve. I've always been one that if I see an issue and I think I can improve it, I'm going to speak up. And if you invite me to a meeting and I have a chair at the table, then I'm going to talk, right? Because that I have a chair at the table and that's what you do at meetings is you converse. And so I, I, and I wish more people would do that. I more, wish more people would get, get involved with the associations. I wish more people would find a need and find a solution for it. So, but it, cause it gets to the point, like at that conference, at that business meeting, you and I were the only ones that brought up anything. There was what, 50 plus people in the room and you and I were the only ones that brought up any. So I don't know how many people at that conference, um, it was their first time or the comfort level. Hopefully it's whoever is listening, <laughs> the board, the association, I'm not just saying this because I'm, nobody's told me, telling me to say this, but everybody there is very welcoming of feedback and open to ideas. I don't think I've ever, I don't know about you, like we, we can't obviously implement everything, but even when you disagree with the board or whoever, another member, everyone's always open to feedback and there's really you know, when people say like, there's no such thing as like stupid questions or stupid answers or whatever. Like, I really feel that whenever I talk to the board members, other members, like everyone's open to ideas, everyone. So I don't know if that's the fear of like, oh, what if I ask a stupid question or what if I give a dumb suggestion or something? But I, I don't know if that helps yeah, anybody. And- I don't know if that reassures anybody, but... Yeah. And look, and you'll be like, Jason, what about the time you said this thing dumb or this thing didn't work out? And yeah, there's been plenty of times that I was the the boob. There is stuff that maybe I get wrong or didn't think through. But I think overall, it's just as you said, the contributions are are there and the stuff that we've talked about and said and done are, are there. And so I do, I do hope the positives outweigh the negatives when it's all said and done. 
This is getting into personal interest, but I just thought you said something funny earlier about not being average and not the most athletic. I'm like, you just finished a marathon and that's not even your first marathon. You've done more. So yeah. And it's funny that <laughs> it's so funny that you mentioned that because I don't think it takes a lot of athletic talent. I think back to my days at Washington, Baltimore, Haida, and towards the end of my seven years, there was this group of, of guys and we got together every day for lunch. We called it the lunch bunch. And there was like four or five of us there that would get together and we would just talk sports and we would talk pop culture and whatnot and just really all just got along really well. And I, I remember at one point in time, it, it dawned on me because there was Joe Ryan was part of that. And Joe Ryan's a phenomenal pool player, obviously. And then there was Matt Smith, who I've had on the show. He's playing in a band, plays guitar. He's super talented in that way. And then there was uh, Kevin Armstrong, who works for Esri. And he hits a golf ball a mile and plays hockey and all this other stuff. And then there's Desmond Estevez here too. Just again, a guy that plays basketball and super, super athletic. And then, so they're like all these guys, like, oh, bringing this, all this talent to the table. And then here was me just orchestrating the conversation kind of thing, asking these different questions. But to me, I, I was the least athletic person in the room, but certainly we got along and had some great times. But back to the marathon thing, it's just, it's probably all about discipline. And the fact that I research the hell out of almost every major decision that I do, whether it's going to buy a house or setting up for retirement or changing careers, going on vacation. When's retirement? Um, like next week? I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's funny. It is, it, it is creeping up on me, right? So I mean, but, and then running a marathon, it's planning and knowing, you know, how much weight you need to lose, what, how much distance you want to do, what plan you're going to follow. And so it's just a regimen for a period of time. Again, I feel that anybody can run a marathon, right? I mean, not do it at a certain time, but you, if you know, unless you have, unless your body breaks down and you, you, your knees or something can't do it. But I mean, it doesn't take special athleticism to run a marathon. To me, it's probably more about the discipline. And it's just like now I am on a regimen of food and watching the amount of sugar I have and eating more sour food, sauerkraut, you know, drinking lemon juice and drinking apple cider vinegar. So, and that's just to me, just another regimen, another plan to implement um, and being disciplined enough to do it. I just feel that anybody can do what I do. You fall asleep? No, <laughs> I'm just sorry. <laughs> I just think like, oh, maybe if I just like pause, like just give it some time. So Jason, I think we'd be remiss if we don't talk about the podcast at all, considering. <laughs> so how has your life changed after the creation of the podcast? Well, I think one major change for me is I no longer hate the sound of my own voice. <laughs> as I've grown as a person, I just think back when I was a child and even college, man, I was really shy. I, I I actually feel that in a lot of ways I'm introverted and everybody tells me I'm crazy when I say that I'm introverted, but there is this anxiety of talking with people and speaking in public. And especially when I was a, a child, I think I, I, 
I've said this on the show before too, is I, I was intimidated of talking on the phone just to say, hi, my name's Jason Elder. Like that would be something that I would have to practice for 20 minutes before I could make the call. Speaking in front of people and the day that I spoke at the IACA conference and there was 300 people in the room, that would be something that a younger version of myself would not ever be comfortable with, would be surprised that I would speak confidently in front of 300 people. So, and then there's the same thing in this idea of like just hearing your own voice and not liking it is, is something that a lot of people have doing this week in and week out is something that, Hey, this is, this is my voice. This is, this is what I sound like. And I don't have any problem with it at all. I think for the podcast, it's learning what's new. Certainly the people that I don't know going into the interview, it, everything's going to be new, but I've been really impressed with people that I've known for over 10 years and discovering something new about them. That's why we do the personal interests sections of there. I find it fascinating. There's this analyst, this is who you are, and this is your resume and you can kind of see it on LinkedIn, but then they'll have this hobby here. That's not anywhere that is out in public and they're doing so many great things. And there's so many interesting stories of people's personal interests. So I find it fascinating just learning about our guests from various aspects. Does it feel weird kind of getting recognized at conferences because of the podcast or? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's funny when I was at the Florida IACA's Florida conference last year. I didn't go in thinking that they knew the podcast. So when I would say, I said, are you familiar with my podcast? And they would look at me like I had three heads saying like, oh yeah, well, of course I've heard of your podcast. So that to me is still a little bit unnerving because I don't want to be in it, to me, it's still someday it'll be there. Someday that feeling will go away. But right now, it would be uncomfortable for me to assume that when I walk into a law enforcement uh, event, that I assume that everybody's heard of my podcast. Yeah, I'm still getting used to it too. I think it was yeah the most recent the most recent IACA conference at Vegas when they had the phone game where they're like, oh, find some IACA v VIPs or something like that, and one of the uh, other analysts like, hey, Jason Minnie, let's do a cell phone like for, for that category. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> so that's so strange. I mean, I mean, obviously we didn't go into this for like recognition or anything, but. Well, Jason, as you normally do, you always give the guests the final words, which is the words to the world. So Jason, what are your final words? <laughs> so the one thing that my dad assured me was that things will change. So that's the thing. one thing that you can guarantee in life is that things will change. And I find it funny as humans, it seems like we fight against change and want things to stay the same. And yet change is inevitable. Also, not only is, is the world changing, we change as people. You could see in various stages of my life that I talked about during this episode is like, I was just, my values were totally different at 15 as opposed to 25, as opposed to 35, as opposed to 45. I can see distinct changes in how I see the world, my goals, and what I want to do. So I would encourage people as they're setting sail for a journey and looking to do some long-term goal, 
first, you have way more control over your life than you're probably giving yourself credit for. And number two, when you're going through the planning stages and and thinking about likes and dislikes and costs and benefits, make sure that you take into account change, both in the world and in yourself. That's beautiful. Well, thank you everyone for coming to Jason's therapy session. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be $200. (laughs) So you end the show with telling guests that they've given you just enough to talk badly about them later. And hopefully this episode evens out the playing field a bit. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and you were grammatically correct with using badly. (laughs) Oh, you're right. Uh, Talk bad about them later. (laughs) Sorry, talk bad. (laughs) I have no idea how to end the show. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for being on the show and you be safe. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.